Let me tell you a story, podcast number 125. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago, never mind it is a true how long it You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, I'm Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We apologize for the long gap between podcasts lately. Thanks to the holidays and finishing the Prisoners of Hope trilogy, we got a little bit behind. The good news is the series is finished. Check it out on my website, beckylyles.com. And we have another guest with a fascinating story for you today. And that is Henry Charlier, who's the husband of Lori Charlier, who talked with us on podcast 118 about a season of anxiety, panic attacks, and depression that she endured not too long ago. In addition to being Lori's husband and a dad to three great kids, Henry also happens to be a biochemistry professor at Boise State University, a Sunday school teacher, and an avid, oh my goodness, hunter, fisherman, trapper, um, hiker, (laughs) all kinds of outdoor activities. He's a busy man, yet he kindly volunteered to fill us in on the other side of the depression story, the caretaker side. So thanks so much for joining us today, Henry. Well, thanks for giving me a chance to tell you my side of the story, because I think it's one that needs to be heard. And there are many people out there that I'm sure are involved with people who have some kind of mental illness, and they have to play the role of caretaker and uh, help coordinate things. And it's quite a challenge. Well, great. I think this will be a real, um, not just interesting podcast, but a real uh, learning opportunity for all of us. So I get to ask the first question. Your sweet, lovely wife, Lori, said you were her rock when she was struggling with depression. Was that a good description of you? Did you feel like a rock? In so much as that I am incredibly stubborn and have a really hard head like a rock, I would say that's true. But the reality is I had to be as consistent as I could possibly be and try to hold her up while at the same time, you know, keep my family going. Um, Lori did a lot of things in the house that, very important things, she helped, usually she was in charge of the finances. She did other things that she could no longer do. So I had to take care of that stuff. And uh, I appreciate that she felt like I was her rock. That's what I signed on for. I didn't always feel like a rock, but sometimes I, I felt that this, though dip, very difficult, was something that I could handle. And then there were times where it seemed pretty uh, spooky and that's something I wasn't sure that I could handle. And so uh, up and down and up and down for about six years. And it wasn't the first time that I encountered depression with my wife. In 1997, uh, when we lived in Iowa, Um, I was a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Iowa, and Lori was having trouble. And we had to deal with, for us at the time, something very new, 
something wasn't right, I could tell. And one day, I got home from work, and I would work long hours. As a postdoc, you have to do your experiments and things, and I got home around 7 p.m., and Lori was nowhere to be seen. And I knew that she had worked in West Branch, Iowa, and I didn't have a cell phone, and she didn't either at the time. So I drove out there about 10 miles, and I saw her car in that school. And when I got there, the doors were locked, everything was locked, and I had to go around the back to where I knew her classroom was because she was a teacher. And I felt like that person who was trying to sneak a date, I had to pitch little pebbles up at the, at the window to get her attention. And finally she came out and I looked at her face and I could see something very different had happened. She wasn't the same Lori that I saw leave for school. And she was frozen. And it was clear to me that she had some kind of a breakdown and she didn't know how to leave. And it took me about two hours and even calling her principal to get her to leave that building that night. And that's when I knew I was in for something I had never seen before. And that kind of began our journey. It took about four months at that time to get things worked out. And part of the thing that had to get worked out were my perceptions of what depression even was. And it was quite a learning experience for me because I changed a lot of the way I thought about depression and I actually learned more and felt um, sometimes a little ashamed that in the past I had judged people for being depressed as people who were just thinking improperly, just stinking thinking, like if they could just change their thinking. But boy, did I learn that there was a lot more to it than that and that it really was a medical issue and it went far beyond Uh, just changing your thinking. And in this case, I found out about medicine. I found out how medicine worked. I had a lot of misperceptions about that as well. And in about four months time to find out how to help Lori, and she was able to find the right kind of drug that actually helped her in addition to counseling and lots of support from a lot of people. And then things got better. We started our family, went for at least 10 more years and then she had a breakdown again and this and I saw that look before I remember the day it was in February and she started a new job my son had um, finished kindergarten and was just starting first grade so my wife thought this would be a good time to try to get a job so she started the job that day she left and when I got home from work I was eager to see what she had done in her first day and what I found when I walked in I looked at her eyes and the only other time I'd ever seen that look in her eyes was the time I found her at school when she had a breakdown and I knew what we were in for and I thought oh boy I think I know what to do here we just need to get her medicine adjusted and that turned out to be quite wrong it took six years to finally figure out what to do wow with your background in biochemistry and having gone through this with Lori before, could you see by her actions or expressions, uh, her facial expressions, what was coming next? So you'd be uh, prepared for yeah, that next step. Was it the same kind of step-by-step as the first time or was it a different path the second time? So maybe before I answer that question, I'll back up even a little bit before that. Um, My background is 
in the area of what is known as enzymology, so studying how enzymes work. And one of the things that I studied it as part of that was drug development. And because a lot of drugs are targeted toward enzymes, for instance, aspirin targets an enzyme called cyclooxygenase, and it can prevent some things from happening that give us the symptoms that make us feel uncomfortable, like headaches and fevers and inflammation. So I had that working knowledge, but initially I did not recognize depression as something that was an issue that could be treated with medicine. When I first encountered depression, I was probably middle school, junior high kind of thing, and I remember my mom would struggle with seasonal depression. At the time, I didn't know that. I just thought she was crazy, mostly. And I, in my mind, didn't really give good, uh, I, did, I, didn't, I just thought she was just being stupid or something, just irresponsible. Or, And my mom actually loved me every day of her life, I know it. But I can honestly say that when she would be depressed, I was not as patient with her as I could. I avoided her, and I just thought it was some kind of a flaw in her, and I wasn't very good about it. So then Lori, before the depression, the first bout in Iowa, was like a person I thought was untouchable. I figured she was strong-minded, strong-thinking. She had her head on straight, and when she broke down the first time, it made me really think, wait a minute, maybe there's more to this depression thing than what I originally thought, because Lori's not the person I would have thought would have this happen to her. She's too strong, was kind of what I thought. And then as, so that forced me to look back at my own thinking about depression and apply what I actually know to do when facing medical issues and, and how medicines work. And I wound up spending a lot of time learning about serotonin reuptake inhibitors and how they help maintain the, the levels of serotonin needed in the brain and that sometimes that gets out of balance and serotonin being a neurotransmitter, if your brain isn't transmitting right, who knows what can happen. The problem is we don't fully get all the things that it does. So anyway, bottom line is I had access to all kinds of medical literature. I started looking into it. It wasn't beyond my ability to understand. And as I dug through it, I realized that what the way I thought about my mom early on was just way wrong. Later on in life, I did go back and apologize for not understanding. And I don't think I mistreated her during that time, but I certainly didn't think well of her sometimes when that was just wrong. I should have shown compassion rather than be a judging person. So. I did get a chance to understand how this worked and I became, in almost a moment's notice, uh, an advocate for people who have depression and realize that it's no different really than diabetes. You would not judge a person for taking insulin to c take care of their diabetes, so why should I judge a person for having to take medicine to take care of something else that's clinically wrong? We don't always understand depression and medical mental illness as well as we do things like diabetes, but nonetheless, it's a real ailment. It's not just in someone's head. It's a lot more complex than that. And I learned that the first bout. So when Lori had the breakdown the second time, I was kind of cocky about it. I thought, okay, I know what to do. Been there, done that, because I thought I really understood it. 
And even then, it turned out I couldn't have been more wrong. I thought we would just tweak a few drugs, have her do some more counseling, bada bing, bada boom, four months or so, half a year at the worst, she'll be all right. And I really thought that. And that just isn't how it went. She built up a resistance somehow to the drugs in a way that no drug combination could work. And we tried just about every class of drug you could imagine. We tried monamine oxidase inhibitors, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, SNRIs they're called, and benzodiazepines. Just There's a list and list, and I'm pretty sure it seemed like every couple of months we were switching to something else, switching a dosage, adding on something. And you really got a sense of what it meant to practice medicine because we were practicing. We were not operating out of knowledge or what we knew would work. We just tried everything. And so every time this happened, every new drug that we saw, I actually would go look it up, study it, understand what it did, or at least what was known about it. Looked at the efficacy, how safe it is. And, uh, and so that was the journey. So it did help me to have the background I had because for me, having data and things to look at, very important. But at the same time, I also felt very helpless because there was nothing we could do to figure this out. It just became like a hobby. We just go to the psychiatrist, talk, and I would take detailed notes and I would make sure Lori was honest about her feelings. Not that she would lie, but sometimes I think she would leave out some things because either she forgot, which is often the case, or maybe was not thinking Maybe might have been a little ashamed because this is not something she was comfortable with either. She didn't like talking about being depressed. And obviously, since she's done a podcast about it, that's changed quite a bit because now she recognizes, as do I, this is something we need to talk about and we need to let people know it's okay to get help and to get treatment. Let me just say that what people need to do is try to be understanding and try to be caring and not so quick to judge. And that was my flaw. And uh, I'd like to say that I, I want people to realize this is something that is as serious as anything, cancer, diabetes, a broken bone. All of them need help and medicine can help. Six years is just a super long time, it seems to me. And I'm guessing the first round you didn't have children. But the second round, you had three children and at least a couple dogs. So how, how did you manage all that? I spent a lot of time praying and asking God for help. I also was very open about what was going on in my life with all of my friends and probably even people that were just acquaintances because I wanted them to know why I was doing what I was doing. So as long as I felt people would understand sometimes why, for instance, I had in my job, I have to teach classes and I need to do research and do service. And I had lots of people who were encouraging me. And um, initially, I didn't really want to get help from other people because I kind of felt like I could swing it. And most of the time I was able to. 
Um, but I had to learn how to. But for the most part, what really made a difference was just having people come up to me and, and cheer me on, ask me how I was doing, ask about the kids, and pray for me, and pray for my family. I can honestly say that's what sustained me more than anything. God answered prayers left and right, and some of my prayers were for patience, and because I didn't always have patience. I will say if you walk into my house, you can go right to the bathroom door, and you will see some kind of a sign up front saying, no parking here. Well, that's covering up a hole that I punched into that door because of sheer frustration about what was going on. Um, there were times when I would just throw things because I just hit my moments where I just couldn't take it anymore. I never was abusive to anybody or anything, except maybe to myself when I'd punch a wall because they hurt. But the truth is, you know, there were moments when I was going to lose it. And so luckily I knew to leave. I'd grab my fishing pole, walk over to the park center pond near my house, and I would just fish. And uh, there's something about that. I, my dad knew this about me way before I did. And that is when I am upset or anxious ridden, I need to watch water. It's a strange thing to say, but I remember once when I was in college and I was wondering, how was I going to pay the bills? And I have too many tests and I don't know if I'm ever going to pass this class and that kind of thing. And I was complaining to my dad and I knew he really couldn't do anything. He didn't have money to pay my bills and and he was pretty far away and probably wouldn't be able to help me with my physical chemistry. And I remember him just saying to me, go watch water. <laughs> and I thought, what a crazy thing to say, old man. But I was desperate, so I took a walk about a mile to the Wisconsin River. And I just watched water flow. And I gained perspective. It calmed me down. And I turned around, went back, and took care of everything. While I was there, of course, I had peaceful moments where I could just kind of clear my head and pray. And so that's a practice I still use to this day. When things are uptight, when I get uptight, I go watch water. And so that's exactly what I would do. And sometimes I would just walk out of the house. But for the most part, I remember my wedding vows quite a bit. And, and I take those very seriously. And, and I am a man of my word, if I'm anything. And I promised my wife when we had our wedding vows that I'd stick with her no matter what. And I clung to those vows. They were very important to me. And during that time, there was even moments where I thought, I don't think she's ever gonna get better. So I just better learn to live this way. And I was actually, I really had my mind set that this is what's gonna happen. And that's how I would spend the rest of my life with a wife who was having some significant problems, who probably daily thought about taking her own life or at least dying. And I had to talk to her every morning to decide if it was safe for me to go to work because I couldn't leave her sometimes because I thought she might harm herself. And so those, those were every day, but I had decided that that was uh, what I signed on for when I got married. And lots of things could have gone wrong, but the one thing that I wouldn't have ever done was turn my back on my wife. 
because um, I'd have been turning my back on my vows that I made and turned my back on what God has called me to be, and that's one of the things is Lori's husband. That was motivating, actually. I barely made it sometimes, but the one thing that never happened was I was never thinking about walking away from my, my marriage. And, and I always remembered that even though this wasn't the wife at the time that I originally married, that she was my wife and still had my unconditional love. Even when she ticked me off, even when she said things that were crazy lies about me, about our family, about how rotten we were, a lot of the things she would believe with all of her heart, but I knew weren't right. I had to be patient. And uh, so God sustained me in ways I never, ever imagined. And, and I remember once I, I realized I probably needed some help myself. And I wasn't comfortable going to a counselor, but I do really well with a mentor in my life. And so I remember going to speak to, to the pastor at my church. And I said, I need, to, I need to meet with someone. I don't need any counseling per se, but I need someone to have my back, to give me some perspective, someone I can talk to. And he paired me up with someone. It was funny because that man, he originally was intimidated by me because he knew I was a professor and he knew that I was a scientist and that he wasn't any of those things. And he prayed about it and he realized that would be great. And it turned out, he was like my twin brother, who was just many years older than me. And he had been through significant issues in his life. His daughter took her life through suicide. And he just knew how to be with me. And I had many bad moments. Um, and I, every time I met with him, we met about once a week, had lunch. Sometimes we didn't even talk about Lori or anything else. We just talked I asked him questions about his life and and he'd tell me funny stories I would we would trade stories and it turned out his friendship was very healing and soothing and even though we didn't always talk about the depression I knew that's why we were meeting was that he could be my support and God used him a lot and I do remember one time when my dear friend Lori didn't really know him so well but he was a pastor at our church and his daughter committed suicide at 13. And I remember being so upset. And I remember it's one of the few times in my life where I've actually swore while praying. And I'm not going to say the swear, but I am going to give you the right idea. I said, what the blank, God? And it was the F word. I don't use the F word, although I did find that word again <laughs> in my frustration. When I was a kid, I used it in every form of the human language, verbs, nouns, adjectives, adverbs. And then I despised that word. And when I was going through the tough times with Lori, when I really despised something, that word would come out because it best described how badly I despised that situation. And so when I said that, I remember saying, what the F, Lord? Why would you let a little girl kill herself? And I was mad. And I remember I just texted my friend, and he responded with Scripture. He didn't try to explain to me anything. And I would come up with another question, and he'd respond again with Scripture. 
He never tried to downplay my feelings. He never tried to counsel me in any kind of way other than bring me to God's word. And I was so impressed with that. It's hard to argue with God's word. And it wasn't anything other than comforting. It, it reminded me of who God is. And then I started thinking about something that I really appreciate, and that's God's sovereignty. It's how I get through lots of things that are really hard to get through. Like when my dad passed away all of a sudden at age 48, when my wife had breakdowns, I could trust in God, even though I didn't understand what he was doing. I just knew he knew what he was doing and I trusted him. And that really helped get through times when I was confused about what was happening, like when that young girl committed suicide. And guys like that man in my life, he was uh, a, a godsend for sure. And I just, that's just the way he approached me. He knew how to approach me. He knew I'm argumentative at times. I, I really don't like being dismissed. I want my feelings understood. I can be pretty uh, selfish that way, I think is the word I would use. But he knowing that just knew how to respond and it was perfect. And so how do I cope? That's it. God just got me in different ways. Now, how do I handle my kids? Well, the way it would go something like this. I knew my kids had to step up. I talked to them a lot about how they were feeling. I tried to make sure that I could validate their feelings. They all felt differently at different times. And I just recognized so did I. And so I tried to reaffirm them. And when they'd hear me yelling or having a harsh discussion with Lori because of her you know, certain ways she was thinking, I always went and affirmed to them that, you know, I shouldn't have raised my voice. I shouldn't have done those things. Do not worry about us. I'm committed to your mom forever and ever. And then I tried to listen to what their concerns were. And quite frankly, some of them, uh, my oldest son, he was like, this isn't good, but I understand mom's sick. And so I can deal with it. And then my daughter, I think Lori mentioned this too, she kind of stepped up as mom. She tried to fill in and help take care of people. Sometimes be a little bossy too. But that's what she did and quite frankly, I thought it was appropriate for the most part. My youngest son, he was probably six when this happened and so it was probably, he didn't know what to make of it and many years went by and he, you know, it wasn't, it, it was, uh, he kind of says it's how he always remembers it for the most part. So it was for him, it was just normal. He did have some issues with uh, temper and things like that. And he and Lori would get pretty involved in arguments sometimes. Actually, I didn't mind that because when Lori argued, at least I knew she had some passion and some something's kicking around inside of her. When she said nothing and just crawled away, then it was pretty spooky. <laughs> so at least she would have that. And I tried to remind her that that's a good thing, even though, you know, it was often a battle sometimes. But then I, I would go to work when I could. Typically, I never made it in before noon because Lori's worst time was in the morning. So I would work at home. I would grade or write tests or whatever it is that I had to do. And, and then I would go, if I felt Lori was safe, then I'd go into work. 
and work with my research students and do things like that. And then I would come home, cook supper, take care of things, talk to my kids. And then I'd hit right around uh, 10 p.m. Everyone would be in bed. And that's when I would actually start working on a lot of the things I also needed to do for work. And that was a variety of things. And I'd get to bed around 1, sometimes 2 in the morning. I'd get back up at around 8 and do it all over again. And that's kind of the way it was. There were moments sometimes where Lori would be a little better, but clearly not there yet. And I could have a little more freedom to do things in normal hours. But that's kind of how I had to cope. I had to do that that way. And also I had to manage Lori's care. So I had to make sure she went to the to the doctor, made sure that she took her meds. Sometimes I had to be in charge of that because she didn't really... It, there were so many meds, sometimes it was confusing, period. And if you're having trouble keeping track of things like she was, that would be very difficult. So that that's kind of the deal. Moments where I felt pretty okay, like I could swing it, and moments where I felt pretty desperate. In the end, like I said, it was knowing that I made a promise to her to love her no matter what. And that was really motivating. It is something I clung to. I'd like to follow up on your comment about your own misperceptions of mental illness. I'm sure you experienced something similar from people around you, uh, maybe questioning what was going on or giving you advice, as we're so good at doing. So could you talk about that a little bit? This is probably the area where I came closest to losing my temper with people. But I was luckily not losing my temper with them because what I found is people in their own way wanted to be helpful. And so they would give me lots of ideas. Some were good. Many were just quick fixes that just betrayed that they didn't really understand what was going on. And even those were okay. But when I've had people tell me things like, stay away from medicine, that actually is causing the problem. I'm thinking, really? So this happened before my wife took medicine. What caused that problem? <laughs> I think people have biases. I think it's improved a lot since because I've had conversations even with some of those very same people and they see it differently now. But early on, it was very difficult uh, when people would give me advice about, oh, you should probably cut this out of their diet, get rid of gluten, stuff like that, change you know, the way I had people say, use, I can't remember what the essential oil was, but to use that, because that would make a big difference. And I honestly, I, most of the time, I just, in my mind, just said, they're just trying to be helpful. And I just say, well, I'm not so sure I buy that. I was pretty upfront about it, but I thanked them anyway. I had people on the flip side, I had people who did understand what I was going through and what my wife was going through, which was more important to me at the time, because a lot of those people were my wife's friends, and I knew that she needed them quite a bit, even though she didn't always want to see them because of how she was feeling. I would say most of the time, the perceptions were pretty on with maybe, maybe some little things that just kind of trivialize certain things, 
certain parts. It's hard for me to think of something in particular, but I just remember feeling that way. Quick fixes. People don't like having to go through a long haul with something like this. They'd like to be able to just snap their fingers or give a magic thing or cut out something or say the right kind of prayer or say the right kind of thing to, to change the way the person was thinking. And what I found is those things can be important, like saying the right kind of thing. But when you're talking to someone who at the time seemed incapable of rational thought, saying the right thing isn't really gonna help. But keeping a consistent message 365 days in a row is what helps. So for instance, my wife would tell me that she was a failure, that she was really stupid and she thought she had a reading problem, that she couldn't read, that she had no success. And in, I may be in danger of endangering FERPA law. FERPA law is, is a family education something protection act. Like as, a, as an instructor, I'm not allowed to tell anybody about their grades, even parents, unless the student gives permission. Well, Lori won't care, and I'm not, I was never her instructor. But in college, Lori graduated with a 3.5 grade point. She could totally read. She was readily hired right out of college to go into her profession of education, she was a go-getter. She was really smart and is, and even then was. But what she felt was what defined her reality. And so even if I pulled out her transcripts and showed her what her grades were, she would always have a way of dismissing it. There was great inflation. They were too easy. So what, what would happen with Lori is I would just keep giving her the same message over again. I'd just say, the facts do not support how you feel. I understand how you feel. Your feelings are real, but they aren't reality. They don't define what really happened. You can't reinvent your past. It's already happened. And there's lots of evidence that says you're a good mom. There's lots of evidence that say, say you're not someone with diminished intellect. You're not the person you think you are right now. The data says otherwise. And every day, I just say the same thing over and over and over again. If I had to say it a hundred times a day, I'd say it a hundred times a day. But at the same time, I would acknowledge how she felt. I would say, I understand you feel that way. But I always tried to point her back to the truth of the situation. You're sick and you need help. Probably, oddly, what I'm about to say is the person with the greatest misperception of depression at the moment that I dealt with day in and day out was my wife herself. She would deny that she was depressed. She just thought, she, she, she would say to me, how do you know I'm not right and you're wrong? That I am just a misfit. I am a poor mom. I am this and that. She would say that to me. And I had to just remember, she's not speaking in her right mind at this moment. And I would say, I know you're wrong about this because I know who you are. And the facts back me up. They're not backing you up right now. It was a day in, day out battle. And so the biggest challenge I had was dealing with my wife's perception because it was twisted at that moment. And that was probably my biggest thing I had to come to grips with, that it was very difficult for my wife to 
live in day in and day out in this kind of thinking. She must have lived a miserable life at that moment. She felt terrible. She thought there was nothing redeeming about her. And she didn't always buy that she had depression. She thought it might just be, she was just a rotten person and wanted to die. Compared to dealing with her, all the other people were pretty easy to deal with that way. There were just a few people, especially if they were talking to Lori, giving her any sense that the way she was being treated for her depression was flawed. Because I'm like, you have no idea what it takes to get her to go to the doctor, to get her to try the medicine. I have to plead with her. I have to do all these things. And I don't need people saying that the medicine isn't going to help. It's just going to make it worse. Because that's exactly what Lori kept saying. And I knew better. Now, I don't deny that some medicines are not good. Some medicines carry a side effect. And I witnessed some of those side effects. Uh, one of them, the most scary of them all for me, was when she would take a monamine oxidase inhibitor. And I remember she, it was almost like she snapped out of her depression and went the other direction. Manic. Manic in a way I've never seen her. So she went on the monamine oxidase inhibitors. And the first time she did it, she stayed up all night, made lists of to-do lists, things that she wanted to do like paint the room and remodel Emma's room and sign up for a bunch of things. All night had a list. And I saw it and it scared me because I'm like, wait a minute, two days ago, you were curled up in a ball on the couch. And now you're out looking for things to do. It was sudden, it was drastic, and it was reckless. She would talk to people, strangers, go out on walks and disappear. And this happened for a few days. And then she came crashing back down and we went to the doctor right away and said, this is not one to try. And But the whole time, Lori felt she was cured at that point. I remember that well. And then after a while, we tried monamine oxidase inhibitors some more, but different kinds at different dosages because maybe that would help. And it just made her, again, a totally different person. And like for me, it was worse than when she was low because it, it was just crazy. So when I saw what a medicine could do, I've seen both sides. I've seen the part that's helpful and I've seen the part that isn't. And it just expands on the mystery that goes along with this kind of treatment. It's not always clear. It's not clean. It's super messy. You never know what's going to work and what isn't. We're still clueless about so many things. That all being said, I still knew that medicine and psychotherapy, counseling, and lots of prayer in the miracle hand of God was all it was going to take to take care of her. And so when people would speak poorly of medicine and not know what they were talking about, not knowing what I had to go through day in and day out just to get her to get the help she needed, it was spooky. And at this point, that's when I would feel more of a defensive thing, like a man fighting for his wife, defending her, protecting her. And that's where my desire to give him a boot to the head came into place. Now, of course, I would never have done that, but that's how I felt. They were threatening my wife's life, and that really got me going. And so those were the moments that were hardest because I realized those people were not being helpful. 
they were undermining any progress we could possibly make with someone who was as sick as my wife was. What can you tell somebody who is going through the same thing as a caregiver? What would you want them to leave with? I appreciate that question. That is probably the biggest reason why I felt like this would be a good idea to do a podcast, is to just speak to those who are out there who are in the same situation I had been in. And I, can, I can't say as I have a formula. I don't think that everyone would approach this problem the same way as me. But I do know that there are some operational uh, things that a person could keep in mind. And first of all, look at your network of people and don't be afraid to ask for help. When things finally got better for Lori is when I was able to convince her to go to Salt Lake City and get electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, also known as electroshock. Initially, the thought of that sounded barbaric because of everything I had heard about it. And then I read about it. Here's what I learned. Electroshock therapy has a remission rate for depression that ranges anywhere between 76 and say 95%, depending on you know, certain things. I don't know what all the, the things are, but that's actually a pretty good remission rate. Drug therapies and psychotherapies in conjunction with one another, the remission rate is in the 30s to 40%. And so when I realized that, and I saw tons of studies that backed that up in double-blind reviews in medical journals, I realized we needed to do that. And it took probably two years to convince Lori to do that. So one thing is you can't force someone to get well. You have to be patient. You just have to be committed to the long haul. So that's one thing you should expect. And the other thing is going back to the network thing. When I finally convinced Lori to do it, I needed help because we had to drive to Salt Lake City on the average three times a week. And I tried never to miss teaching. And so that was a challenge, but for the most part, I was able to do it. And people, I had, I had a, at the time, I had a 17-year-old, a 15-year-old, and a 13-year-old. Oh wait, no, my son wasn't that old yet. So 17, 15, and 12. I had to leave them at my house. And I knew that I have pretty responsible kids, so I knew that the three of them could manage, but I still was worried. So I just send out a letter, an email, to every person in my life, both people in my church, some people that I worked with, and I said, here's what's happening, I need your help. People brought them food. I had someone who had just come by to make sure my youngest son would get out of, make it to school okay. And uh, all these people had our backs. The very mom that I talked to about kind of having to apologize to, I flew her out and she stayed with my kids. It turned out to be a wonderful time for them. They didn't get a chance to see my mom that much and, and it was so cool to see my mom have her back the way she did. Of course, moms do that, and my mom did. So I let people help me. In fact, I more than let them, I asked for help and wow. That was so uplifting to see all these people care for me and my family in ways I never would have ever known had I not asked. And it gave me a super big appreciation for God's hand in my life and for all those people he put in my life. 
And so for those of you who are struggling because you're a caregiver and you don't, you feel alone, find your network of people, people who care for you, people who will have your back. You'll be surprised oftentimes at what there is out there. The other thing is, is I I do believe that God is real, that God loves me, and I believe he loves you. And I do believe that when you don't have what you need, give God a chance to help you. And you may be surprised at what you see. I was, and I actually had seen God work pretty great things in my life. And this surprised me even then. For me, I think being open to what the professional health people have to say, the providers, I mean, I don't trust everything I'm ever told. I always verify. So everything a doctor told me, I would look it up. I would study it. I would see if there was something to it. And if I didn't like something, I would actually bring it up and challenge the doctor. And the doctors that we had were so good and gracious that they were pretty honest with me and they would asked me to send them the articles and they actually worked with me and I learned to trust them. And so some people have an innate distrust toward things they don't understand, especially when it comes to medicine, especially when it comes to treating mental illness. And you have to kind of open up your mind a bit and be willing to at least listen to what the options are and then verify. That's really important. And you may be surprised what happened with Lori. She had 12 rounds of ECT for about three a week, so that's four weeks. She went into remission for about two or three weeks and then dropped again. So I called, we did 12 more sessions, and after that, things just improved. I actually, for the first time, could see the light at the end of the tunnel, and I loved every minute that I had my wife back. Even now when she annoys me, I delight in it (laughs) because she's alive and she's vibrant and she's even better than she was when I first married her. And it's just awesome to see. It gives me perspective that I've never had in my life. I don't sweat too many things now. I still get ticked off when someone cuts me off in the car, but I, I can handle the big things because I've seen how big our God is. I've witnessed in my mind a, a miracle and I know that there's so many people out there that have my back and my family's back. I am grateful. And I really hope that any of you who are out there who are facing these kinds of challenges would know that there probably is a light at the end of the tunnel for you. You don't have to be alone in this. I encourage you to be brave, show some courage, and share how you're feeling with somebody else, someone you can trust, and just let it out. And you might be surprised at what it can do for you. Because as the caregiver, most all of the attention is given on the person who needs the care and not on you. And so you can feel alone. So reach out. Talk to someone if you need to get counseling. For me, it was not a direction I felt I needed. But I was willing to consider it. In fact, it was not off the table for me. It just... I wanted to try the mentorship thing first, and that turned out to be what I needed. There's no harm in getting counseling. In fact, getting help, getting perspective is so important, and you don't have to be by yourself. It's a unique position you're in. It's really an act of servanthood where you really do have to put the other person's needs before your own.
Don't be surprised if it's hard, if it feels impossible, but don't be surprised if you find that with the right perspective, you can find an inner strength that you might not have otherwise known. And really, for me, that came through God himself providing what I needed. Couldn't have done it without him. And it's really changed how I view God in a big way. So that's about what I'd say. I think you said off mic, if I understood you, that part of what helped you through this was listening to music. Was that right? Right. Uh, for me, listening to music was another way I could, in quotes, watch water. But there were certain songs that all had something in common. They talked about people who were encountering a shattered life situation in some kind, but were able to overcome, even though maybe their life would still end, but they were able to get through those moments because of who God is in their life. Uh, one that comes to my mind is a song by The Afters called Light Up the Sky. And I would watch that video half a dozen times in a row when I really felt down. And I just would be moved to tears. Even though those are fictional stories, they were realistic. And in this video, I remember specifically, they showed a woman who had found out she had terminal cancer. That means you're gonna die. And they showed her in grief, they showed her do all this stuff, and then they showed how God could help her through that. Then another scene in the video showed a woman whose husband decided to leave her. And she went through all the pain and agony with a friend. But then eventually she herself had to come before God and she found peace in him. And then the other one was a guy who just got fired from his job and he was about to take his own life. But then he was able to recognize who God was in his life and was able to see that with God he had a way. And so those were just, for me, everything. They, they reminded me of who God was in a, in a real tangible way. Even though, like I say, I know it was just words to a song and acting, but my life was kind of like that. And so that was really helpful. Songs like that were great. Thanks, Henry, for sharing, sharing all that. Sure appreciate that. So thank you, Henry, for joining us and sharing your side of Lori's story with us. That was certainly a journey for your entire family and it's so fun to see you on the other side and to our listeners thanks for joining us and remember you too have a story be sure to live it to the fullest thank you for listening to let me tell you a story please email your comments suggestions and submissions to story at beckyliles.com that's all for now Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.